Okay, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 5. Excuse me, Andrew? Huh? Could you raise the camera a little bit? We can only see the torso. <laughs> That's the best part. I know, we can't see your face, though. It helps. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, maybe it was the best part about 20 years ago, anyway. <laughs> How's that? Is that better? No, it's, that's just, I think you put it down rather than raising it up. Um, can you see me spinning it? Tilt it up a little. Oh, yeah, I know. Open, open it up. This will fix everything. <laughs> the camera was not plugged in. Oh, that's the, okay, thank you. How's that? Perfect. Perfect. Okay. First Corinthians five, stand and read with me, please. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even amongst the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, I, with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, have decided to deliver such a one to Satan, for the destruction of his flesh, so his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of this world. But I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Please be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. When we began our sermon series titled Life Lessons from Corinth, I promised you that we were going to do a minimum of 10 sermons in this series before we moved on. Well, it's hard to believe, but today's actually number nine. So we're almost coming to a close in this stuff, in this, well, in Corinth. And my hope is that it's been as profitable for you as it has been for me. But today we're going to be talking about uh, what to do when a believer falls into an embraced pattern of sin within the church community. What do you do when that happens? What recourse does the church have in such situations? And what steps are to be taken? It's an important conversation for us to have. Because as, it, as, it, as sad as it is to say, it's inevitable in the life of a church. It's already happened in the eight years of ministry on more than one occasion at Genesis House. Well, thankfully, uh, Paul's going to provide us with answers. 
So the sin going on in Corinth is a weird one. <laughs> it's a weird one. We pick this up in verse 5, or verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Hard to know the details of what he um, was going on here, because Paul doesn't give us any. But there's really two observations that are important from this text, or this verse. First of all, um, whether, we don't know whether the son was biologically related to his mother, or it was a stepmother. Most commentators believe this was a relationship with a stepmother. So we can make that clear for sure. There was some kind of relation, there was a too close of a relationship. And in any ways, it was irre- irrelevant in terms of how close they were in terms of stepmom or biological because it was shocking in terms of the nature of the relationship. Not only was it unacceptable with Paul, and it was forbidden in the, the, the uh, Mosaic law, it was also clearly a cultural faux pas as well for the, for the Gentiles. The secular world thought that was all wrong. He says, he says here, this kind of thing doesn't even exist amongst the Gentiles. So again, we're not even in God's community, in the secular world, this is a no-no. Now, that's amazing of a statement when you think about it, because you think of how relaxed Corinth was in regards to sexual relationships. I mean, think about it. I mean, look at the letters loaded with don't do this, don't do that, don't you know this, don't you know that. They had basically a no holds, no limit to anything goes kind of society. They are very liberal. And you know what? They're just like our culture today. The liberality is basically anything goes. But in this one arena the incest between the stepmother or mother in terms of biology, whichever one it was, was an absolute off-the-table thing. But we learned something right off the bat and that God holds our sexual relationships in high regard and is designed only for the marriage bed. It's designed only for the marriage bed. Everything else, God wants us to put a hold on it. Now, the reason for this is huge. Uh, it's a huge sermon. It deserves its own subject matter of itself for a sermon, and I don't have time to deal with it today. But the second observation I want you to notice here is that this relationship was not a one-off, but ongoing. It was not a one-off, it was ongoing. Notice he says here um, that someone has his father's wife. They have his father's wife, not they one time had their father's wife. So again, this is an interesting observation because it shows that it's an ongoing relationship. It's not just a one-off. Gordon Fee words it this way. Paul's use of the word has is a euphemism for an enduring sexual relationship, not as we would call it like a one-night stand. So again, this is, we're, te- we're dealing in this category of dealing with sin with someone who's embraced the pattern of sin and is unrepentant of it. We're not dealing with someone who sins once and has dealt with. This is like an ongoing thing where the person has not repented. But the biggest problem for Paul is not so much the sin itself, but the way the Corinthians had failed to deal with it. Let me pick this up in verse 2. He says, You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. Notice what Paul does here. He addresses the attitude, the attitude of the Corinth, Corinthians in terms of how they've handled this. 
They've allowed sin to blatantly go unchecked in the Christian community, and instead of mourning, they were prideful about it. Now, we're not totally sure how they were prideful. Perhaps they were worried about their reputation as, as a church if they went and addressed this issue. Maybe this man was a man of status, and to address this man of status was, to, was a dangerous thing. Or perhaps they were even endorsing it. Perhaps they thought, like, kind of almost like they were cheering on, like, wow, that's like, you know, again, liberal Corinth, like, who cares? Because the body doesn't matter. It's only the spirit that matters. That's the Greco-Roman mindset towards uh, their body and sex. Paul makes it clear, though, you've completely missed the mark in terms of the humility that God is expecting from you. You know, in Scotland, where I'm from, my family's from, as you can tell by my mom's voice there this morning, <laughs> uh, they have a saying called gutted. You're, you have to be gutted. So if you're, if you're you know, a, a sports fan or something, or, and your team loses in the, in the championships, the Scottish person might say, I'm absolutely gutted. And it hits them in the pit of their stomach with the pain of the loss. And so Paul is really saying, you should have been gutted, absolutely gutted by the response of what happened in your church with this man and his, and his mother. Instead, you've become arrogant towards this. And you see, the New Testament deals with sin and our attitude towards it when something like this is going on. Not just in Corinth, but in the letter to James we see an incredible, incredible uh, passage here. He says this, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That's why the Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Again, the exact opposite of Corinth. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. When people are in the patterns of embrace sin, mourning is a natural response. Now, evidence mourning would have occurred in Corinth would have been simply this. The last part of verse 2, they would have removed this man from their midst. If they had mourned properly, it would have resulted in the removing of the man from their midst. He would have no longer been allowed to receive the benefits of being in the Christian community. But because he was still there, clearly they hadn't mourned. Now, this also tells that tells us that the mother involved in this process is probably a non-Christian because he's only addressing the man and not the mother. And if he has his father's wife, it's consensual. So I would suggest from this text that he's not dealing with the mother because she's not part of the church community, but he is. So the Corinthians had failed. They hadn't mourned and taken action to remove the man. But Paul's stance in the situation was very different. So he wanted to make clear that, uh, what he felt about the situation. Oh boy, here we go again. This stuff. All right. 
Actually, let me just backtrack one step, step before I go on. I need to say this. When you read the action that Paul wants the Corinthians to take, you'd think, man, that's harsh. That's harsh. Like, that's really strong treatment. It even seems unloving. Now, Paul's going to explain a little later as to why this is necessary, but I want you to read a quote from Gordon Fee. Here's what Gordon Fee says regarding this situation. <laughs> He says this, there are, always, there are always some who sees this action as harsh and unloving, but such criticism comes from those who do not appreciate the Bible, biblical view of God's holiness and the deep revulsion to sin that holiness entails. It's a powerful statement by Gordon Fee, but that's the reality of it. If you think this is harsh, it's because you don't understand the, 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 the necessity of understanding God's holiness and what the sacrifice of the cross meant. So again, Paul now wants to make the Corinthians clear that he has a different stance in the situation. And so we pick this up in verse 3 and 4. He says, For, uh, for I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Remember, Paul's not in Corinth when this is going on. If he was, he would have dealt the problem with the problem firsthand on his own because he would have been there amongst them. It's the reason why he had to write this letter in the first place. But Paul wanted to make it clear to Corinth that even though he was not with them in body, he was in spirit and in the authority of Jesus' name. And he had already passed sentence. Therefore, the Corinthians should follow in his footsteps and do the same. But notice the nature of a sentence that he passes. He says in verse 5, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, what does that mean? There are so many uh, variations of this, and there's, I've heard some pretty uh, crazy versions and funny stories, but let me just try to tell you what I think it means from the biblical text, and you can... Uh, Talk to me about it in the dialogue after. Let me just first say what it can't mean. It can't mean capital punishment. That he's delivering him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh means he's going to be given to Satan so that he can be killed. Not like the medieval times when they burned people at the stake. See, the context is clear. Being delivered to Satan assumes that the potential for relationship exists beyond this punishment. It assumes the potential for relationship exists beyond this punishment. Verse 11, he says, after the person's been um, dealt with, he says, do not even eat with such a one. Why tell someone not to eat with such a one if the whole idea was that he was going to be dead or, be, or removed and killed for that purpose? Like the stoning in the Old Testament, for example. Makes no sense to tell them not to eat if he's still alive. So again, this person's very much alive no matter how you deal with this, uh, this phrase. Well, first of all, the context makes it clear as to what it is. It has to do with disassociation. It's disassociation and severing of relational ties. That's what it means to hand over someone to Satan in the beginning here. I can prove it to you four times in the text. 
Read verse 2. He says, you are to remove the one from your midst. Read verse 9. I wrote to you my letter not to associate with immoral people. Read verse 11. He says, I wrote to you not to associate with such so-called brother if he's an immoral person, not even to eat with such a one. And in verse 13, he says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. The context makes it clear. To, to hand this person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh is in the same category of disassociation and excommunication from the church family. Here's the point, though. Once removed, where does a person go? They go into society. They go back into the world. And remember what the New Testament teaches regarding who's the boss in the world. Who's the boss? The devil. Remember, 1 John 5.19. He says, we know that we are children, the children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The whole world is under the control of the evil one. So again, when this person is handed over to this, for the destruction of their flesh and they're handed over to Satan, they're put into Satan's realm. They're put out of the church into the world. So it's not a reference to capital punishment, but a reference to someone being excommunicated or removed from the fellowship and community of the church and placed back into the world that they were first saved out of. So how does this work? What, what, what could this look like in practicality? All right, so... You know, uh, an individual is in Genesis house, and they're called out for embracing sin that they're unrepentant of. They get angry at me for the conversation, and so they leave in a huff. And they leave angry and frustrated with the church. And they continue in the relationship that they've embraced, or the pattern of sin they've embraced. But as time goes on, something happens to him. First of all, it becomes clear to him that this kind of sin will not be tolerated in God's house, in the Christian community. And second, he learns, hopefully, that life in the world was not as fulfilling and as rich as he thought it was going to be. And he misses his church family, and he misses the intimacy he has with the Lord. And there's this inner turmoil in his spirit, this wrestling. He wants to be with the people. He wants to worship God. He wants to be, have experienced the self-giving love that exists in a church community, and he misses it. So in recognition of what he, he has lost, he comes to his senses, and he repents. He comes back into fellowship with the Lord, and he comes back into fellowship with the community of believers. So again, the key to this whole process, church, it's meant to be redemptive in nature, not con like for permanent condemnation. That's another reason why being handed over to Satan has nothing to do with uh, losing your life. It's meant to be redemptive in nature. He says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He's walking a dangerous line with God when he's, when he's living this way and claiming to be a follower. And so it's a restoration with the Lord and with his community. So again, the whole thing's a sort of shock therapy designed to give a person a jolt in hopes that they would turn their life back around with Jesus in the church. But as Paul continues in verse 6, we see that the purpose of taking such drastic action is not just to deal with the individual, but for the protection of the church community. 
Did you catch that in verse 6? He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Many of you in Genesis House have made friendship loaf or Amish bread. And you know the process, right? You have this little starter. And the starter is what? Laura, Shani, Evie, all all of you... uh, um, leaven lovers, <laughs> and Amish bread lovers, whatever it is. I've been the recipient of them, so don't stop. Uh, we love it too. But uh, anyhow, we know what that is. It's a starter. It's a little portion of dough that's kept back from the dough that you're making. And over time, you leave it out to become fermented. And as it ferments, this becomes the, the, the thing you use for future, future use to enhance your next baking that's coming up about. And it causes uh, the next baking to have a certain flavor, to have a certain lightness, and for it to rise, for example. Without that sort of fermented uh, uh, dough, your baking fails to succeed. But here's the key with leaven. It's a powerful and permeating influence that affects the whole. Leaven's a permeating and powerful influence that affects the whole. And in the New Testament, it's used in both positive and negative ways. So a positive is Matthew 13, 33. Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God being like leaven, referring to how the kingdom of God grows. But he also uses it in negative ways. For example, in reference to the, the Pharisees and King Herod's teaching in places like Mark 8, 15. Well, the context of Corinth is super clear. It's the negative. And Paul's point is obvious. Undealt with sin in the church is like leaven, it becomes a permeating, detrimental influence within the church that affects the whole community. And Paul says, we cannot have this. The question is, how would this occur? How would leaven spread in the church? Well, if you have people who profess to be followers of Jesus in the church community, and they embrace patterns of sin but you go on treating them like fellow believers and having them experience all the benefits of community, then you open that way of life and open that door for that way of thinking to spread right through the church. Ben Witherington says it this way, you could tempt others to see how far they could push the boundaries or push things, right? How do you persuade teenagers in Genesis House to avoid sex before marriage? when you tolerate the business person in the community that's doing it all the time. I do premarital counseling and I go up to this young man and I say, or young woman and say, here's how God wants you to operate before your marriage. And he goes, well, I'm not listening to you. You have uh, so-and-so and over here doing the exact same thing. I have no leg to stand on. How do you have a teacher who happens to be a member of Genesis House, how do you speak to a teacher who, um, who is constantly gossiping in the staff room when you find out about it? How do you deal with them when there's other people in the church that are doing it as well? And you tolerate it. So you go for women's Bible study and one, one woman's always gossiping about another, always, always, and it's undealt with. I mean, it just... It, there's someone else who comes in is not going to listen. You don't have a leg to stand on. 
And so Paul says, this is why we have to deal with it. Leaven has a permeating influence that can destroy the whole. So we've just come from uh, the bakery. Now we're going to go into Egypt. Paul gives another theological reason for why to deal with sin in the church. He says in verse 7, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The way Paul has these Corinthians get their head around dealing with sin in the church is he reminds them of who they are in Christ and what he's done for them. Who they are in Christ and what he's done for them. He says, don't you know that you are actually unleavened? That's who you are. Remember, sin is a reference, like leaven and sin are interchangeable. He says, you're unleavened, but not because of your own righteousness. He says here, for Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. So you're unleavened community because of what Jesus has done for you. It's his righteousness that gives you that status. Therefore, he says, there's a way to continue in the Passover feast. Interesting, in the Old Testament, the Passover feast of unleaven, had unleavened feast for one week when leaven was rooted out of their houses. So it's a one-week celebration. Here he says, you continue to celebrate the feast, but it's permanent. It's permanent. Passover, unleavened feast, one week long. No leaven in the community. In Jesus' economy, it's permanent. You celebrate the feast with the way you live unleavened lives. Unleavened lives. You get rid of malice and wickedness, and you put on sincerity and truth. And so you deal with the sin in the church and remove that person. So we end in verses 9 through 12 with Paul giving us very practical information here. He says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the moral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go to the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's immoral or covetous or an idolater or reviler or a drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from amongst yourselves. Notice Paul makes a very clear distinction of who's to be associated with and who's not. Those to be associated with are those in the world, the secular people, those who are the swindlers, and so on. Again, without the Lord, what other kind of behavior do we expect? Before you came to Christ, that's the behavior I expected in you, or you'd expect in others. That's what it is to be a non-follower of Christ. But we're to associate with those people who we aren't to associate people are those who adopt that lifestyle but claim the benefits of the community and that they're in relationship with Jesus. Now it's a different story. Now this is, goes hand in hand with last week's message about how to win people to the Lord. You can't win anyone to the Lord if you're not with other people who don't know him. And so we are to bump shoulders and associate with non-Christian people. Again, we are light in darkness. We're not light to the light. 
Light is for the dark, it's not for the daytime. But again, this is what's important here is Paul saying this, it's not that we can't have contact, sorry, we are to have contact, we're just not to conform. So contact, yes, conformity to their way of life, no. And that's the distinction, and that was last week's sermon. But again, when someone professes to be a follower of Christ and lives that way, our association is to be different. In verse 11, he says, do not associate with any so-called brother. And in verse 13, he says, remove the wicked man from amongst themselves. Never forget, uh, I really missed the ATB bank because when I owned my business, I had a really good relationship with all the tellers. And I had to leave there due to eventually new management that didn't sort of work with me the way the old management did and so on. But I used to love going to the ATB bank and the girls were great. And sometimes it was awesome. Like God would open up these doors where I'd stand like, like sort of at the, at the desk and there'd be three women listening to me kind of preach different Christian truths. But how I gained the reputation to have the right to speak in that bank was one particular day and one particular story. I was just getting my money and handing it in to do a deposit. And one of the girls there said, uh, was talking to one of her coworkers, and then she says, we're not allowed to judge people, right, Andrew? And I said, uh, that's an interesting comment. I said, that depends. And she goes, depends on what? I said, well, it depends. I said, if you claim to be a follower of Christ and you're in the church or you're not. And she goes, what do you mean? I says, well, um, it's clear in the Bible that we're allowed to judge other Christians by their behavior and make judgment calls in their life, but we're not to do in the secular world. So I said, when you ask me if I have the right to judge or not, it depends if you're a follower of Jesus. <laughs> and she says, that's not in the Bible. I said, yeah, it is. And so I said, hey, I tell you, I said, next time you have a lunch break or whatever, I'll uh, meet you at Tim Hortons and buy a coffee. And she's like, sure, met her at Tim Hortons. Bought her the coffee, opened the Bible, 1 Corinthians 5, and, and she goes, I never knew that was in there. And she had a church background. After that, every time I'd come in, she would intentionally sort of bait me into Christian spiritual subjects, and then I, but it was always done in fun and love, and so I have this open platform with them. But it's cool. We are to judge those in the church, but not those outside the church. And judging in this context has to do with association association with someone or not. So I'll leave you with this thought before lessons. Always at Genesis House and through the series of Corinthians, I want to help you get the middle ground. You, there's people swung out on one side and swung out on the other. We need to find the middle. So what are the two extremes in this kind of passage? One, a church who's lax on sin. Lacks in sin. Just anything goes. Just come as you are and stay as you are. And, you know, God's grace covers all. That's too far this way. On the flip side is to be so tight and, and legalistic, you don't let anybody in the doors. And you make a holy club where no one's allowed to enter that doesn't know the Lord. And these kind of things happen, like monasteries and things like that. Even a Bible study can come that, become that way. You can swing out on both ends. Somehow the people that come to the sort of like no, no, no entrance allowed somehow miss the verses in the Bible that Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. A friend, not an acquaintance. 
Jesus, the acquaintance of tax collectors, no, a friend. Jesus, the uh, acquaintance of uh, sinners, no, a friend. We missed those verses somehow. So again, seek the middle ground at Genesis House. We seek not to be lax in sin, but to deal with it. But we also seek to be gracious and allow people in knowing that there are sinners because they do need the Lord, and this is the, the place to hear about his love and mercy. So what do we learn? When patterns of sin are recurring in the church and the professing believers unrepentant, we ought to be in mourning. You see people on, in the sin in church, you know how easy it is to say, man, I'm sure glad it ain't me, or sucks to be them, or can you believe those people, how they got into that? That's not the right attitude. Nor is it to ignore it because we're uncomfortable that we want to deal with it. That's not, a, that's not good either. We ought to be in mourning. It grieves God's heart that this is going on. It needs to grieve ours. James 4, verse 4. Number two, when patterns of sin are recurring in the church and the professing believer is unrepentant, we are to remove them from the fellowship of the community. This is what it is to be handed over to Satan. I was actually going to do handed over to Satan means, <laughs> but this is clear. This is clear. You remove them from the church community and they go back into the fellowship of the world when they're unrepentant. However, Removing and disassociating, disassociating from a professing believer who has embraced the pattern of sin is not an unloving act, but a godly response with a twofold purpose. Purpose number one, it's designed to be redemptive in nature, that their spirit may be saved in the Lord of, day of the Lord's return. Number two, that they, well, part of that too, it implies back into the church community. That's what is impl it's implied in, the, in this. Number two, it's designed to protect the church community. Leaven leavens the whole dough. And it's a permeating influence that can destroy the community. So again, two full purpose, redemption, repentance, and protection. Lesson number four, and the final one is this. Followers of Jesus are to associate and have relationships with people in this world, not judge them. Don't break association. Associate. Have contact, but no conformity. And if you want the details of how to do that, that was last week's sermon, if you weren't here. So Father, we give you thanks for your word. And we know that uh, this is a, a book about love. The whole, the whole Bible is a love story about how you've created us to be in relationship with you and how you've done everything possible from your, from your point of view, to, to restore what's been broken. We know that this teaching seems harsh, but we also know that it comes from a loving God who understands what's best for us. If anyone in our church right now has embraced patterns of sin and has been hiding it, we ask, Lord, that they, be, they would turn their laughter into mourning and come before you. If there's um, anybody in the future that needs courage in our church from the leadership to deal with stuff, 
that you prepare their minds and hearts to do so. And we thank you for your word and how it teaches us how to live every day, both inside and outside this building. And uh, we just give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.